Good morning, Highland Church family. As we transition to diving into God's word, let me just go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for this time to hear from you today from a very powerful text from your inspired and errant word. So we just pray now that you open our hearts, that the spirit is able to work in our hearts, to encourage us, to convict us, and ultimately to give us a better glimpse of who you are this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, since 1973, every three to four years, there's a worldwide event that takes place called the Ocean Race. For this particular race, it's a nine-month sail yacht race that all these different ships and crews circumnavigate the entire globe. It's a race that covers over 39,000 nautical miles, and it's a pretty intense race. During this global journey, they face a lot of different uh, struggles and difficult circumstances. Some of those include facing formidable waves that are the size of small buildings that they have to take their small boats across. Sometimes they are faced with sudden squalls that have the power to throw their ship into chaos at best and to potentially capsize their ship at worst. Many days they go feeling constantly nauseated by being thrown to and fro back and forth by the powerful, relentless ocean. Those are all just a taste of the difficulties the crew has to face. But you know, there's another set of conditions that's even worse. It's entering into a region of the ocean known as the doldrums. Now, it's bad enough to enter into the doldrums one time, but in the 2014-15 edition of the race, the crews entered into the doldrums five different times. Now, let me explain why that would be so difficult. The, the doldrums have earned the name the desert of the ocean. The doldrums comprise a narrow latitudinal area near the equator where the northern and southern hemispheres trade winds converge. And something really interesting happens at this point of convergence. The typical restlessness of the ocean can sometimes turn into completely smooth, almost like a pane of glass seas. The, the winds can almost stop completely. Not only that, this is an area of intense heat, sometimes receiving some of the highest possible, uh, possible UV index. And all of those factors combine to create that's an area that's disastrous if your ship is powered solely by wind. That's why the doldrums were so feared by sailors in past centuries when they had no other way to power their ships. I mean, just imagine what that would have been like to be a sailor who unexpectedly enters into the doldrums. Out of no nowhere, the wind that's been filling your sail for days suddenly subsides. Your boat gradually comes to a complete halt. You're trapped in the middle of the ocean and you have no backup source of power. Until the winds pick back up, you are just sitting there powerless. Now, at first you try to stay upbeat and positive. You think to yourself, maybe this will actually be a nice break. Maybe this will give us a break from all the ins and outs of trying to get the sails ready and control everything and we can just rest for a little bit. But slowly your optimism begins to fade. Each day tops out at over 100 degrees as the scorching heat continues to rain down on your already sunburned bodies. And there's no reprieve from the heat because there's no wind to even subside some of the temperature even a little bit. 
And even worse, as each day goes by, your crew's food and water supplies begin to gradually diminish until finally you're starting to do some calculations and you realize that unless the winds pick up again soon, you're not going to have enough supplies to last to the end of your journey. And as you're stuck in these doldrums, you begin to feel helpless and scared and trapped. The heat and the pure boredom of being stranded there turns time into molasses. Every hour begins to feel like a decade. Everyone on, sh- on the ship is also in gr- uh, growing increasingly hostile. Tempers are flaring. Infighting is rampant. Panic is overtaking the hearts of everyone on board. And as two weeks of stagnation continue, they plunge the entire ship into a season of depression and despair. Everyone's left asking the questions, how long is this going to last? Are we even going to make it out the other side? Now, this morning, I'm imagining no one listening to this sermon has ever been trapped in the equatorial doldrums on a sailboat. I'm guessing that's probably not true of you. However, I think that for many of us, the past year has felt very much like being trapped in the doldrums. Due to a variety of circumstances, many of us feel like we're on a ship that's headed nowhere. The wind that typically carries us forward has subsided, and the longer that we feel trapped on this ship, the more depressed, the more discouraged, and the more hopeless we begin to feel. The more irritable and hostile and panicked we begin to interact with one another. And many of us have began asking the same questions that the ship's crew would ask. How much longer is this going to last? How much longer are we going to be trapped in these difficult circumstances? Are we ever going to make it out the other side? I think this has been an easy season for Christ followers to feel like they're trapped in a spiritual doldrum. You know, there's a lot of Christ followers who have been in a season of spiritual stagnation and discouragement. A lot of us feel like we've been afflicted with a downcast and melancholy spirit. There's an unexpected and undesired fog that settled in over our very souls. And because of that, many of us are feeling scared, helpless, and abandoned. And as we begin to look out onto the horizon of the future, a lot of us are starting to feel a little hopeless. We begin to ask God, are, are you ever going to send a wind to fill our sails again? You know, when our pastors chose our Psalms for this series a few months ago, I felt like God was putting it on my heart to talk about the topic of spiritual discouragement. As we've been going through the past few months, as I began talking with friends and coworkers and family members and many of our, our spiritual family here at Highland, I realized that there were a lot of us who were unexpectedly entering into a season of the spiritual doldrums. The last seven months have been toilsome, they've been draining, they've been depressing. And for many of us, we probably feel like there's very little wind left in our spiritual sails. Many of us feel stagnant, many of us feel abandoned, many of us are losing hope. The darkness of spiritual depression has began to grip our souls. And you know, first of all, if that's you this morning, I just want to start off by saying that we see you and and we love you. We want you to know that we are with you in this season of spiritual dryness and discouragement. You are not walking through the valley of the shadow of death alone. We are here and we want to help shoulder the burden you're carrying in any way that we can. But second of all, 
I want to assuage some of the unnecessary guilt that you might be feeling. You know, when we find ourselves in a season of spiritual depression, we can feel very guilty and think that we are doing something terribly wrong. But, you know, being spiritually depressed is not always a sign of spiritual immaturity. As I look through scripture and I think through church history, there are many examples of godly men and women who entered into deep seasons of spiritual depression and discouragement. And it wasn't because they were spiritually immature. I think of David as he was fleeing for his life from his son Absalom after he rebelled and was trying to take David's life. And he was, he was deeply depressed. I think of Elijah after the absolute victory that he had on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal and he goes into the wilderness and he enters a season of depression where he doesn't want to eat or drink for days and God has to intervene to save his life. I think of Naomi who after 10 awful years in Moab changes her name to Mara which means bitterness, bitterness of the soul because she has lost her husband, her sons, and everything. Not only that, I think of People throughout church history like Martin Luther or C.S. Lewis or Charles Spurgeon who had suffered with deep bouts of spiritual depression. We have the testimony of many mature men and women who experienced the spiritual doldrums. And these stories remind us that spiritual depression is not always a sign of spiritual immaturity. But you know, third this morning, I want to provide a word of hope. Now more than ever, we need to hear messages of hope from God's inspired and errant word. And this morning, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at a psalm that deals directly with the topic of spiritual discouragement. And as we unpack this text, I hope that God speaks some words of refreshment and encouragement and hope to all who are fighting for hope right now in a season of spiritual darkness. So with that in mind, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 42 and 43. As you're turning there, let me give you some needed background information to this passage. First of all, it's highly probable that these two Psalms were originally penned as one Psalm. Later on, the compilers of the Psalms probably split these into two different Psalms, but they are most likely written together and we would be wise to read them together. You know, second of all, the subscript under Psalm 42 tells us who the original author would have been. This is someone who was part of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were of the tribe of Levi, and they were essentially the Jeff Weisses of Old Testament Jerusalem. They were the worship leaders. They were the ones that were writing the songs that brought praise to Yahweh. They were the original instrumentalists who were able to usher the people of Israel into jubilant worship of the Lord. So this psalm was written by a man who was once leading the city of Jerusalem in joyful worship. Now notice how I said once led Jerusalem. From this text, it also becomes clear that he's no longer able to do that. And I think that brings us to a third important piece of background information. I believe that this psalm was most likely written right around the time of the Babylonian captivity of Judah. In verse 6, the psalmist gazes back towards Jerusalem from the Mount Hermon a mountain range in Jordan, and he's specifically on Mount Miser, which just means little hill. This would have been one of the most northern uh, most parts where you could still look to the south and see the hills that Jerusalem rested upon. My guess is that he is on his way to spend the rest of his life in Babylonian captivity. And this is the last look that he gets of his homeland, of his former job, of 
of the, the once beautiful temple. And as he, once ta- as he takes one last look over Jerusalem, spiritual depression overwhelms him. And in that pain, he pens these amazing words and turns to the only person with the power to deliver him from his despair, the Lord. So with that in mind, let's read Psalm 42 and 43 together. Here's what the psalmist writes. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As we read through these psalms, we can clearly identify with the psalmist's emotional pain, can't we? He uses all sorts of vivid word pictures and similes to capture the depths of his depression. However, this is not just a poetic venting session. In these verses, we also uncover the psalmist's strategy for how to defend his soul against the sorrow. No matter how thick the darkness was, he refused to succumb to sorrow. He refused to throw in the spiritual towel. And that really brings us to the big idea of these passages. I think this is what the psalmist is telling us. Here's the big idea. Fight for hope. Fight for hope. And I think that phrasing is important, that we fight for hope. Because that reminds us that there are many things in our lives that are fighting against us to make us feel hopeless. Whether it's a global pandemic or unpleasant medical diagnosis or conflict in a relationship or even our biological predisposition, we all face things that seek to make us sorrowful. And if those circumstances go unresisted in our lives, we will never have hope. Hope is something that has to be sought and fought for in the midst of dark days. So as we progress through the psalm, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to look at some of the common causes of spiritual depression that the psalmist outlines. And then second, we will identify the weapons that he uses 
to fight against those causes in his battle against sorrow. So let's begin by diagnosing the common causes. And that's our first point this morning. Point number one, we need to diagnose the causes of spiritual depression. And that's important because many times making the right diagnosis is essential to knowing how to correctly combat the problem. I think of a medical doctor who needs to diagnose what's ailing a person, whether it's a bacterial or viral or fungal infection. The right diagnosis is essential to know how to prescribe the right treatment. We must also rightly diagnose the causes of our spiritual discouragement. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 and through 3 again to see our first cause. The psalmist describes here a parched deer that is panting with dehydration for the streams of water. This deer deeply thirsts, but the water seems to be elusive. And the psalmist says, that's how I feel in my walk with the Lord right now. He desperately longs for God's presence, but God's presence is nowhere to be found. Let's record our first cause this way. Cause number one, feeling abandoned by God. Given his current circumstances, the psalmist feels like God has totally deserted him. He feels alone in his struggle. He feels neglected. He feels forgotten. And as he weeps day and night, his inner thoughts mock him and say, where's your God? Where's God if he really cared about you? And you know, I'm imagining Satan excited to pounce on his vulnerability, added salt to the wound by asking things like, if God really loved you, he wouldn't abandon you like this. God really cared about you. Don't you think he would have given you some peace by now? Why trust in a God who seems to be totally indifferent to your pain? When we feel forgotten or abandoned by God, spiritual depression is always lurking nearby. As the psalmist continues, he reveals a second cause of spiritual depression in verse 4. He's transformed his brain into a movie theater and he's replaying the highlight reel of better days. He looks back and he remembers what it was like to have these massive gatherings on the Temple Mount for festivals and celebration and worship of the Lord. He remembers the rush that came from leading thousands of people in passionate, jubilant praise of Yahweh. He remembers the overwhelming sense of God's presence and peace as he orchestrated the perfect night of worship on the Temple Mount. Leading corporate worship was his happy place and now that's been forcibly taken away. He misses the worship. He misses the temple. He misses his spiritual family. And as pleasant as all those memories are, now they're just adding to the grief because they're reminding him of everything that he's lost. That brings us to a second cause of spiritual depression, remembering happier days. And you know, I think that's a cause that's especially present right now among Christ followers. I imagine many of us resonate with this experience. We long for the days before COVID-19. We miss being able to gather together without any restrictions or without any extra precautions. We miss the ability to worship without the fear of passing or contracting a virus. We miss our brothers and sisters in Christ who haven't been able to join us for worship because they have a uh, predisposition to getting sick just as they miss being here with us. We miss better days. And sometimes reflecting on those happier days can simply add to our grief by reminding of all that we've lost. And that can bring a deep sense of sorrow. That brings us to our third cause of spiritual depression. As I said earlier, I believe verse six 
is referring to the Babylonian captivity. The nation of Judah spent 70 long years in exile in distant Babylon as a punishment for their sin and rebellion against the Lord. I I think there's another cause of spiritual depression hidden in that verse. Here's our, our third cause of spiritual depression. Sometimes it's because we're receiving spiritual discipline. Hebrews 12 reminds us that as a gracious and loving God, sometimes he disciplines his children for their good. He disciplines us to break our hearts from the hardness and to break us from the sin and idolatry that we've been chasing after. Whenever there is hidden and unconfessed sin in our hearts, we will spiritually shrivel. And I think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 32.3. David says, when I kept silent, when there was hidden sin in my heart, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Hidden sin produced a sorrow and sadness that could be felt down in his very bones. And God used a momentary spiritual discipline in David's life to grieve him into confession repenting and restoring him to a right relationship with God. So sometimes we actually navigate ourselves into the spiritual doldrums by chasing after sin and idolatry. And God has to use that discouragement and that spiritual depression to bring us back. That's why it's so necessary for us to regularly take an inventory of our spiritual lives. We need to examine our hearts and ask God, is there any way that I have been spiritually drifting and allow myself to get out of spiritual alignment? Sometimes our spiritual discouragement can be a spiritual discipline waking us up to the lurking sin that's hiding in the corners of our heart. That brings us to a fourth cause of spiritual discouragement that we see in verse 7. The psalmist uses some graphic word pictures here. He says, I feel like I'm drowning in the tumultuous ocean of my circumstances. He says, I'm trying to stay afloat and I'm trying to catch my breath. But every time I do, my circumstances pull me back beneath the surface. He says, deep calls to deep. It's a poetic way of saying trying circumstances are calling back to one another and they're conspiring against me. They're lining themselves up so when one trial ends, another one begins. He says, I feel like waterfalls and breakers and waves keep crashing over my head. And every time I break the surface and get a breath, I'm pulled right beneath the waters again. Let's summarize our fourth cause of spiritual discouragement this way. Navigating painful circumstances. Life circumstances are uncontrollable. Now we actually don't like to admit that or believe it, but nevertheless, it's true. No amount of planning or strategizing or wealth or power can fully insulate us from trials and difficult circumstances. And if we didn't believe that, 2020 has certainly taught us to believe that. Painful circumstances can tempt us to fall into a season of depression and despair. We resonate with the psalmist verbiage that life can feel like a lineup of breakers and waves and waterfalls crashing over our head, plunging us deeper into a sea of depression. If our joy and stability are rooted in our circumstances, then sadly we are going to find ourselves in the spiritual doldrums often. Living in a fallen and broken world means that no one is immune to the trials and pain that this life will bring. So our circumstances can certainly be a source of spiritual depression. And that brings us to our fifth and final source. Look back at verses 9 and 10. The psalmist 
is mourning and hurting due to the oppression of an unnamed enemy. There are people that are taunting him in his pain. They're belittling his trust in the Lord and they're amplifying the lies that God has forgotten him. In Psalm 43, he provides even more details. He says that these are people who are slandering me. They are persecuting me and they are oppressing me at every turn. Let's summarize a fifth cause of spiritual depression this way. Enduring mistreatment by others. You know, as we navigate life, we're going to endure mistreatment by others. Sometimes it's going to be from an enemy. Sometimes it's going to be from people that we love. Other people are going to hurt us. They're going to gossip about us. They're going to lie about us. They're going to try to get other people to oppose us. They're going to find ways to abuse us, whether that's emotionally, verbally, or physically. And every time they do, they deposit a little bit, a little bit of bitterness into our hearts. And as that pain and that unresolved bitterness festers in our heart, it can certainly pull us into a spiritual depression. Now, I don't have to convince you of the pain that comes from other people who mistreat you. We know that pain to be deep and profound. And as we consider this list of five potential causes, it's no wonder the psalmist finds himself in a spiritual doldrum. That's a lot of pain and hurt and sorrow to carry in one's heart. There are emotional wounds that run deep that he's carrying with him. There's great sorrow that's tempting him to feel abandoned and defeated and hopeless. And I'm sure there were moments where he felt tempted to succumb to the darkness. There were probably days where he wanted to throw in the spiritual towel. There were probably mornings where he didn't want to get out of bed and face another day. There were moments when he wondered if God really did care about him anymore. However, the psalmist refused to give in to despair. He refused to be defeated. He refused to believe that God would not again be his source of deliverance and salvation. And I love this psalm because the psalmist doesn't minimize the pain that he felt. He doesn't pretend that everything's okay. He doesn't deny that there's sorrow in his heart. However, he refuses to allow that sorrow to rule his heart. He determines that he's going to fight for hope. And that brings us to our second point we need to defend our souls against the sorrow. If we're going to fight for hope in the spiritual doldrum, then we need to learn from the psalmist's defenses that he used to protect his heart against the sorrow. I wish we had time to dive into these defenses on a much deeper level. Maybe that's another time, another sermon for another time. However, I do want to briefly identify five defenses that we can use to protect our soul from succumbing to the sorrow. These are five lifelines for tough times. Let's, let's look at our first defense. Defense number one, we need to remember God's sovereignty over our situations. You know, as I was reading through this psalm and I came across verse seven, something stuck out to me that I'd never caught before. He says, God, um, it feels like your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves are crashing over me. Now, first, that might sound like a citation. He's saying, this is your fault. But notice, there's embedded trust there, isn't there? He says, even when life feels chaotic, even when life feels out of control, even when trying circumstances are pummeling me, I know that you are still sovereign and in control. These are your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves. Even when he's tempted to say it is chaos and everything is out of control, he can look and say, no, God is still sovereign even over my sorrow. 
the psalmist rightly recognized that God is working things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, even when we can't see it. The psalmist recognizes that God is weaving together the perfect tapestry for our lives, and he can even use the threads of pain and sorrow, even when we can't see how he is at work. God has a plan for our pain. Though our circumstances might be profoundly painful, one thing they never are is purposeless. And the more that we believe that, and that God is good, and that God is for us, the more we find strength to face the next season of sorrow with a little more hope and trust. Let's look at our second line of defense. Defense number two, we need to pray to God honestly. We need to remember that the Psalms are originally prayers. And God gives us a a treasure trove in the Psalms because he gives us 150 different templates for how we are allowed to pray to him. And there's a prayer for every occasion. There's a prayer that teaches us how to adore and praise God. There's prayers for contrition and confession. There's prayers for thanksgiving and gratitude. And in this Psalm, we also see that there are prayers for hearts that are filled with sorrow and pain. I love these Psalms because God inspired these words. And by inspiring these words, God is saying, I give you permission to be vulnerable and transparent with me. God says, I give you permission to express your emotions to me. And they don't always have to make sense or be perfect. He says, the the psalmist is saying, God, I feel abandoned by you. I feel forgotten. I feel neglected. Where are you? And God says, you know what? I give you permission to say those things when you're in pain. You can be honest and vulnerable with me in those moments of despair. You can pray to me honestly. But here's the reality. A lot of the times when we're going through sorrow, rather than clinging tighter to the throne room of God, we turn away from God in anger and frustration. Rather than praying to him honestly, we give God the cold shoulder and say, I'm not talking to you right now because you're letting all these things happen to me. We need to learn that when difficult trials come, we need to cling to God in vulnerability. We need to bring our prayers and supplications and anxieties before him and leave them at his throne, uh, knowing that he cares for us. And as we do that, he'll give us the peace that we need that surpasses our understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. One of our best defenses is authentic and vulnerable prayer. Here's a third defense we need to implement. We need to worship God regularly. Look again at verse 8. The psalmist says that even on the darkest days of his spiritual depression, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love over me, and at night his song is always with me. Even when sorrow had gripped his soul, he says, I choose at night to have God's song of worship on my lips. Worshiping the Lord can be a powerful antidote to a melancholy spirit. You know, I couldn't help but think of the Apostle Paul and Silas in a Philippian jail when I thought of this point in this verse. Paul and Silas were thrown into a Philippian jail unjustly, and it's midnight, and they're shackled, and the shackles are so heavy and painful that they can't sleep. So in their insomnia, what do they decide to do? Fill the prison with praises to God. They sing songs and hymns that remind them of beautiful truths in the moments of their despair. Don't underestimate the power of choosing to worship and allowing that worship to comfort a sorrowful soul. 
when we're in the spiritual doldrums, oftentimes we don't feel like doing much spiritually. There are temptations for us to withdraw from prayer, from scripture reading, from fellowship, and from worship. However, those are the moments we most need to lean into those habits. Those are habits that are spiritual IV that are nourishing us spiritually when we are too sick and too incapable to feed ourselves. We can't disconnect ourselves from the habits that are helping us get through those moments. We need to lean into worship when we're feeling sorrowful. Those are the moments we need to pull up a Spotify playlist of worship and and really marinate on those beautiful words. Those are the times when we need to have beautiful songs like It Is Well or Because He Lives or Great Is Thy Faithfulness on our heart that we can sing to ourselves in those moments of deepest sorrow. We need to keep those treasured moments of worship near our hearts when we're walking through darkness. Here's a fourth line of defense for our soul. Defense number four. We need to immerse ourselves in truth. Look at verse three of Psalm 43. He says, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The psalmist says, God, I need your light and truth to lead me through this season of depression. Because he rightly knows that lies and deception abound when he's feeling depressed. And those lies are planted everywhere. Walking through a season of spiritual sorrow and depression is like walking through a field with countless hidden landmines without a guide. We need a guide to get us through safely, just like we need God's truth to guide us through that season of sorrow. It's so important that we immerse ourselves in the right sources. When sorrow and discouragement abound, we need to immerse ourselves in God's truth through Bible reading, through meditation on his word, through listening through a sermon podcast or seeking godly counsel or just meditating of stories of his past faithfulness. It's God's promises, his perspective, and his wisdom that will safely lead us through a season of despair. And you know, I think that's a crucial point right now. Because I know there's a lot of discouraged Christians who are struggling with immersing themselves and their minds in the truth. Instead, we're immersing our souls and our minds in different sources. Sources of lies, deception, and division. Sources like social media spats, endless panic-driven news cycles, echo chambers of doom and gloom with coworkers, and heated, divisive, partisan warring. Conversations of just being anxious and fearful of what the future holds. I want to say this graciously and lovingly. You will never find hope, healing, or peace for a discouraged soul in any of those sources. Right now, we need to be desperately and daily immersing ourselves in God's truth instead of the angry, divisive, and hopeless discussions of our culture. What are you immersing your mind in? And that brings us to one final brief defense for our soul. Defense number five. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Notice the powerful thrice repeated refrain of the psalmist. He says three different times, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's preaching the gospel to himself here. He's saying to his spirit, remember the salvation that you have in the Lord. Remember the deliverance that God promises for his children. Remember that nothing can rob you of your hope when your hope is rooted in the gospel. 
One of the most powerful defenses we have against the sorrow of the soul is by meditating on the gospel message every single day. It's being reminded of how profoundly and sacrificially we are loved in Christ. One of our greatest defenses is being reminded that God is not indifferent to our pain. God's not callous to our suffering. God takes our suffering seriously. In fact, he takes our suffering so seriously that he sent Jesus to earth to suffer more than any other individual in history. He takes our suffering so seriously that he sent Jesus to come and endure trials and persecution and emotional pain. The psalmist says he feels abandoned by God. God didn't abandon him, but God did abandon Jesus on the cross. Jesus cries out to God and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus came and entered into our sorrow so that he could set us free from our sorrow. Jesus died so that we could be new creations in him. Jesus died so that we can have eternal life. Jesus died because we are so loved and cherished by our heavenly father. God loves you deeply and relentlessly. When the spiritual doldrums tempt you to think that God has forgotten you or abandoned you or doesn't care about you, all you have to do is remember the cross. As we look at the cross, we, remi- we are reminded that we are cherished, never forgotten. As we look at the cross, we're reminded that we are loved, never abandoned. The cross reminds us that suffering won't have the final word. Peace and joy will be our constant companions in eternity. The cross reminds us that Jesus is for us and he will never leave us or forsake us. I love how Tim Keller summarizes this point in his book, The Reason for God. He writes this, If we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still don't know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he's willing to take it all upon himself. That's the heart of the gospel message. And that's why we can always fight for hope. Even in our confusion and pain, we know that God loves us. We know that we are children of the king. We know that the wind will return to our sails. And we know that one day when we arrive on the shores of eternity, Jesus will greet us and be with us forevermore. We have a hope that the trials of this world can't tarnish. Our hope is Jesus. Let me close this in a word of prayer. You know, Father, I, I recognize that There are a lot of people in our church, in our society, in our culture, in our world right now who are suffering grievously. There's much sorrow. There's much pain. There's much discouragement. There's much depression. And Father, we know that there are so many things tempting us to feel those ways. But Father, we want to fight for hope. And as we fight for help, help us to move our gaze from the circumstances of our lives onto the person and work of Jesus. The more we gaze on Jesus, the more we are reminded that we are cherished and loved by you. And that even though sorrow might try to get our souls to feel sorrowful, we can be reminded that our joy is rooted in the person and work of Christ. And Father, as we remember that we are so loved by you, allow that to fill us with an uncircumstantial joy and peace. Allow us to find comfort in these words today. Allow us to choose to fight for hope. We love you. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. I pray these words were an encouragement to you.